Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the fifth chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Galatians, where we are going to be considering verses 7 through 15. Galatians 5, 7 through 15, you can find that passage on page 1144 in your pew Bibles. This morning, as I said, we are continuing our look together at this very Christ-exalting book of sacred scripture. Last week, we were just beginning to dig into this fifth chapter. And in doing so, we considered the Apostle Paul's exhortation to this Galatian church that they were to stand fast in the liberty that was theirs in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was something that Paul said they ought to be diligent in protecting their liberty. It was something that they ought not be taking for granted. It was a gift that should never be foolishly just set aside or moved on from. Because that liberty was purchased for them at a staggering cost. The liberty that was theirs in Jesus Christ did not come cheap. It was not free. It cost Jesus Christ something. The laying aside of the glory that was his with the Father, the sufferings and the the trials of his flesh, it ultimately cost him his life. Paul tells the people that when they turn aside or they turn their back from this glorious liberty to become entangled again with the law for their justification before a holy God, to be plagued again by the devastating disease of self-righteousness, that what they do in essence is in fact remove their eyes from the Lord Jesus Christ and they cling to something else, to anything else that is entirely different. Something very, very different from the glorious liberty that they ought to be living in and thriving under. They were clinging to something much, much less than Jesus. And Paul says they ought to be standing fast. That is, they ought to be digging in. They ought to be preparing to go to war with anyone who would dare to simply cast that liberty aside. And replace it with the bondage that they had already been delivered from. Paul is closing this letter and he has stayed extraordinarily consistent throughout its entirety. The only righteousness that can and will ever save a man is Jesus Christ's righteousness. And unless they look to him in God-given faith, the sad truth is they have no hope without him. No other man's righteousness will suffice. No lesser righteousness will ever qualify before the Father as being sufficient righteousness. Because, beloved, the truth is, in terms of the law, there is no other righteousness. He has attacked the lies of those false teachers who had lured these precious sheep away from salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
never failing to point out the dire consequences of their errors and the extravagant cost of believing and living out their devastating lies. The gospel of Jesus Christ leaves absolutely no room for self-righteousness. Paul continues to point his beloved flock back towards faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way. There's absolutely no room for compromise upon this essential truth of what it is that justifies a sinful man before a perfectly holy and just God. So Paul has an effect laid it all out on the table. He has defended his own name from the many slanders that had been circulated by these workers of iniquity. He has continuously pointed to the truth and he has brought the Galatians back time and time again to the place where they could see all the lies were not only completely unfounded, but were damaging to the people themselves, to the very people who would believe them. It's not Paul's reputation that he's standing fast here for, that he's fighting so vehemently for. It's the gospel that drives Paul. Their peace, their joy, their rest was being disrupted and disturbed by those who had sold them a false notion That salvation consists of Jesus Christ and something else. Paul has come back now in his argument to the issue of circumcision and the role that it played in the redemptive history and the salvation of God's people. And you remember the false teachers did not come in and simply deny the gospel outright. That's not how they work. It might sound like a small matter, but... This is exactly how Satan, the deceiver, the father of lies, always works. He does not creep into the church and try to convince all of the people that Jesus Christ never really said these things. Or that Jesus Christ was probably not the Son of God. He does not come in and deny God's fundamental existence. He does not deny the significance of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, he simply comes in and he lulls the people to sleep with that siren song of peace, peace, where there is no peace. Beloved, the point is there is no peace from the gospel and. No, Paul, no, Satan inflicts far more damage by using just enough little pieces of the truth and just slightly bending them, slightly altering them so that people can walk away thinking that they know something more about their salvation. When in fact, by changing the message even slightly, he makes something entirely different from the gospel altogether. By slightly changing the way that you and I are reconciled to God, God is robbed of the glory that rightly belongs to him. And man is vaulted up to a place that simply does not exist for him. Man gets the glory and he cooperates with God. Beloved, I'm telling you again and again from this pulpit, 
that message is not a gospel at all. That's the message of the false apostles. They say, yes, yes, by all means, have faith in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. I mean, you must have faith in Him. We're not going to deny that, but you must also be circumcised. Believe in faith and do something. Surely you don't think that Paul meant that you should just ignore your obligation to keep the entirety of the law of God perfectly? If he did, he must be wrong. You must do something in the Christian life. And thus began the war that you and I are still fighting, I hope, in the church today. Self-righteousness is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that when we see it, we too, like Paul, are willing to lay aside every other matter to turn people back to the glorious truth that man is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, solely because of the grace of Almighty God alone. That's it. We ended last week with verse 6 in chapter 5 where Paul having clearly made his point that to turn again to your own law-keeping for righteousness was to turn your back on Jesus Christ. He said this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. The idea that we can keep the law has been shown to us time and again to be a false one. Not only in the pages of the Holy Scripture, but I trust, beloved, even and especially in our own lives, there is none righteous. No, not one. These are not simply Paul's words. They're not my words. They're God's words. When we think that we have become righteous by the law, we have failed to see not only the truth of the commandments themselves, but the enormity of our sin in the stench that it truly is in the nostrils of Almighty God. And as I've mentioned continuously throughout our time looking together at this epistle, self-righteousness then is death to the Christian. It's death to joy, it's death to peace, it's death to comfort. Because it denies our desperate need for the Lord Jesus Christ. As soon as we think we are something when we are in fact nothing, we leave aside humility and we fall headlong into pride, seeking not our own glory, not, seeking, seeking rather our own glory and not the glory of God. And Paul, having laid out the correct path for the church here, turns one last time to those who would dare to mishandle the word of God and to use it to enslave those for whom Christ died. His attention once again goes to the false teachers. And Paul makes it very clear that these are not simply misguided, muddle-headed men of good intentions. They are not simply those who have erred in ignorance. In fact, they are much more sinister than that. And Paul uses perhaps some of the strongest language yet in this letter to point to their wickedness. And the danger that exists for the people of God if they let this kind of thing remain unchallenged in their presence. 
So if you have your Bibles with you, again, I invite you, follow along as I read now Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 15. Hear now the word of our Lord. This is Paul speaking. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Father, again, we are grateful this morning for your word. We pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds from those things that distract us this morning, that we would give our full undivided attention to your word and that hearing your word through the power of your spirit, that we as your people would be transformed by that word as we are made the radiant and beautiful bride of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you hear, hear us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> Paul speaks of the Christian life here using a very well-known comparison. He speaks of the Christian life as a race. And we see that same comparison used in some of his other epistles as well. He tells the the Galatians that at least in the beginning of their race, they ran well. In other words, they started right out of the blocks as those who know how to run. So you get the picture. We see it in our minds. The the minute the gun sounds, these people were off and they were running and their strides were long and rhythmic in the picture of consistency. So Paul says to them, you ran well. I came and I preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord to you, and you were rightly filled with joy and you embraced this message of hope. You heard the word of God. You trusted in that word by the God-given gift of faith. You ran well. But unfortunately, you notice that Paul is forced to use the past tense here. We can assume some things by that. The assumption is, of course, that they are not running well now. They are not continuing to run well. They ran well. 
So he asked them in verse 7, let me ask you this, you who once ran well but have decided to break stride, so to speak, who hindered you from obeying the truth? You understand his question, beloved. Paul is saying, who got in the way of Jesus Christ? Who stopped you from living in wonderful, joyful appreciation of the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ? Who? Paul has very clearly, thoroughly rebuked these Galatians. They bear responsibility for their actions. They have abandoned faith in Jesus Christ and replaced it with a seriously misplaced faith in their own supposed abilities. They're absolutely responsible for that. And Paul has called on them to repent and look once again to the Lord Jesus Christ and find mercy. To look to the resurrected Savior and find hope. To look away from their own inabilities towards the perfection, the ability, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to find in Him life and joy and comfort and peace. And so he reminds them again with the past tense. They ran well once. But now he turns his gaze to those who hindered them. Those who felt as if they needed to place something in the way of their progress towards joy and peace and comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who decided that they would trouble their consciences with the lies of Satan. And he turns their attention, that is the attention of his beloved flock, to them as well. And he says, who is this who stands in the way of your gospel obedience? Who would dare to thwart the glory of God in your midst? He quickly answers his own question with who it was not. That answer is tough to hear if you're thinking this whole thing through. Paul says, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. You understand what Paul is saying. The gospel and, the gospel plus you and your own supposed law keeping is not from God, period. This newfound so-called obedience, this new call, new new so-called morality as your justifier, this confidence in your own flesh, no matter how good you think it looks, I want to tell you this morning, it does not come from God. Beloved, we need to hear this, right? The truth is, I hope we all feel the sting of that slap across the face of those who dare not only to be self-righteous before the face of God, but who actually in that arrogance then look toward heaven and attribute our behavior, our mighty works to Almighty God as if he's smiling upon us because of our effort to be at least as good as Jesus is. God is not pleased with our version of the law light. 
He's not pleased with the the list of rules that we make up that we can keep flawlessly in the name of being spiritual. He's not pleased with your ability to convince others that the true path to righteousness belongs to those who also keep your rules. Maybe as you hear that, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, Steve. If that's true, then what is God pleased with? That's a great question, right? If I can't please God with my works, what is God pleased with? Listen, God is pleased when we look to the law and we are undone with what we find looking back at us. He's pleased when we cling to the hope of the gospel in faith. Knowing that Jesus Christ alone was righteous in the eyes of the law. That he alone paid all of the debt for all of our unrighteousness. He's pleased when we in our weakness embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. He's pleased with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You understand? There is a reason... That God said of his son, the son of God in whom I am well pleased. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be very careful what we attribute to the creator of heaven and earth. And Paul adds to the sting of his rebuke here by very bluntly Telling the self-righteous, you are not following the word of God. I don't care how good it looks. I don't care how well others perceive you. I do not care in the least how many bite on every silly word that you post on Twitter or in the blogosphere. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there is absolutely no comparison between yours and his. God is pleased in his. Yours is not truly righteousness at all, and it is not of God. So chase that kind of foolishness from your lips even now before you're tempted to speak it. That's what Paul is saying here. And I want to ask you this morning, beloved, do you truly feel the weight of those words? Well, if you do not, have no fear because they get a little bit stronger as if they're not strong enough. It gets stronger. If you're still clinging to your right to impress God with the things that you do, I want you to please keep listening because Paul has something to say to you this morning. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. No doubt you've heard this verse countless times in your lives and Growing up in the church or being around the church, it's quoted constantly in Bible studies that I've been to. I've heard it used with regards to a notion of sin sort of generally in any number of instances where it would be fitting to say that a little bit of anything ruins the entire thing that it comes into contact with. And Though there may be shreds of truth in those types of statements, Paul is talking about something very, very specific here when he says it and when he applies it. He's talking about false teaching. 
And specifically the teaching that it takes both a noble, well-intentioned attempt at the law and faith in Jesus Christ to justify a sinful man before a holy God. A little false teaching will destroy hope altogether. It will destroy many in the church. If we only step back and we allow it to go unchallenged, it will not take long before it's another message altogether, one that no longer even sounds remotely like the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why Satan works in this way. It slowly erodes and eventually destroys any real hope at all. It robs God of any glory at all in the salvation of man. And you really do not have to look far and wide to find it, do you? You know, I constantly harp on Christian bookstores, which are barely a thing anymore. But, you know, when I came into faith in the early 1990s, Christian bookstores were everywhere. It's where you went to get your stuff. Now you can, you know, bring up a blog or you can listen to it on your phone. That stuff didn't exist when I first came to faith. I can tell you that I don't harp, I harp on them because I think it's wicked what they do. And I want you to understand, I don't have any problem at all with the leaders of the church selling books to teach the people through this kind of avenue. I have zero problem with that. The reason I hate it is because of what passes for teaching in the church. The gospel, well, the church in our country, first and foremost, is full of false teachers. Really in the world, it's not just our country, it's the world. False teachers are everywhere. The gospel is peddled to people who will willingly give up their money so that their itching ears can hear what it is they want to hear, which, by the way, is never the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is worse is that the church And her leaders are, for the most part, silent. You understand that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was willing to die for the purity of the true message, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He was willing to give up his life for it. But though we are hopeless sinners, unable to keep the law that Jesus Christ came and perfectly kept it for us, He received upon himself our penalty, the penalty that we have earned in our sin, and he died that we might have life in him. That Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God being poured out upon him in our place because of sin. We are indeed sinners. We are wicked, and our sin is a foul stench before Almighty God, and even though we are like that, Jesus Christ came and he died for us. Beloved, that's the gospel. And if you are a purchaser of the church's so-called bestsellers, you're probably filling up your bookshelves with something entirely different from that. It may sound a little like the Christian message, but it also tells you that you're not bad. You're not that bad. You only need to stay positive in this life. And then, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that. 
This is what our church, the church, buys by the millions. And I stand back and I say, where is another Paul? Where is the one who will stand up and say, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will not destroy the peace of the church with drivel. Maybe it's you. Do you feel like that? Like this is that important? Has Paul put too much of an emphasis on, you know, this one little area of life, the evil of self-righteousness? Listen, I promise you by the word of God, if your salvation relies in any way, shape, or form on you or on your strength, then the truth of the word of God says that you are doomed to the very fires of hell. That is precisely why the Apostle Paul fights like a madman when it comes to the purity of the gospel message. This is why we in the church cannot compromise for even a second when it comes to the wonderful hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A little leaven ruins the whole lump. The whole batch of dough is ruined when we allow even a little to remain unchecked. Paul continues to keep his sights locked on these false apostles. Verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you, the Galatians, and the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. He says to the Galatians, look, I know I have seen the way that you have embraced the gospel when I came and I preached it in its purity to you. I know this will be enough to set your feet back on paths that are straight. But the ones who have crept in and led the people astray and they know who they are, trust me when I tell you they will pay for what they have done. They will bear their judgment. Beloved, does that frighten you this morning? You know, I can remember reading this passage of Scripture in looking at my, my own life, and seeing the pompous, self-righteous guy looking back out at me. And worse than that, seeing the train of self-righteous, pompous guys getting behind me. And I was terrified. And I was incredibly sad. Because something that I think is clear here, do you know what damage you do to the message of the gospel and to peace and hope when you add to it and then you teach others to do it as well? You tell yourself that you're just hoping to make their lives, you know, a little bit better. I just want to make their life more comfortable. I want them to look better than they do. But in reality, you just turn their eyes away from Jesus. Their only comfort in life and in death, their only hope of peace. And you force them back into the bondage of finding some kind of inner strength to do the things that you want them to do. You call them to at least a version of the law and you tell them they need to keep it if they're truly going to be regarded as serious ones. It seems so harmless. 
And after all, it really will be helpful for them to leave their sins and their addictions, their ugly addictions behind. Because, you know, that's all I want. I want a better life for them. That can't be bad, right? As if they need anything more than to wholeheartedly trust in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. As if I'm a better motivator than the gospel. As if anything else could produce more peace in their lives than faith in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ and in him alone. You see the destructiveness of self-righteousness, right? It goes beyond you. I have. I have seen it. And I want to tell you, I'll never go back to it. It is a heinous thing to turn someone away from Jesus Christ back towards themselves. And I fear that well-meaning Christians do it far too often. We just need to do something. They just need to do something. I just need them to tweak their life in this way or that way. Then I can take them seriously. We think it cannot be this simple because we've not really considered what we are. If we have, then we know that it's anything but simple. It takes a miracle. It takes the condescension of Almighty God himself to set aside his glory and the inestimable value of his life on earth to come and suffer this flesh to purchase what I know to be of very little value, if any at all. If we see ourselves as Scripture describes us, then we can hope in nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Paul makes the point here that it is His message that is hated. He says, verse 11, Brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? then the offense of the cross has ceased. Paul is saying, in essence, look, it's perfectly in my power to end this horrible treatment that I receive daily. You question my integrity, or at the very least, you let my integrity constantly come into question. Let me ask you this. If I could only embrace what these men are promoting, what they are saying, then I could end my suffering, we could be united, and I could maybe even enjoy some quality of life for whatever few years I have left on this earth. But you have seen that I am still persecuted, Paul says, because I will not and I cannot embrace any other gospel, even if it means my death. The truth is, beloved, the cross is offensive to those who hate the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I stand for the gospel in all of its purity, they will continue to abhor me and make my life difficult, but that's not enough to sway me. As you consider the priorities in your own lives, I urge you, consider Paul's, and then go back and look at what you think might be worth fighting for in this life. What do you think it is that you might be willing to die for? Paul says he wishes that the false 
teachers would cut themselves off with a rather crude reference to their banner about circumcision. I'm not going to elaborate too much on that other than to tell you that the ESV translates this word for cut off here as to emasculate themselves. That's what he says. I wish that they would emasculate themselves. Paul hates what these men stand for. And he hates what they have done to the flock that God had entrusted to his care. And like a loving father, he forcefully yet gently gathers his sheep back into the pen, back into the comfort and the safety of the truth of the word of God. And Paul says to his sheep, to his sheep verses 13, 14, and 15, Brethren, you have been called to liberty. <laughs> You've been called to freedom. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love. In your freedom, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a new message to us. Real faith produces love that does not go inward, rather outward, as it produces love for one another. That's what true faith looks like. It does not immediately turn introspective and say, what must I do to make sure that God knows how much I love him? Rather, it says, what can I give to others because God loves me? Christian life lived in the glorious law of liberty is motivated by gratitude and plays out as we in turn lay aside self and serve the Lord in the freedom given to us in the gospel. Do you hear the word of God this morning? Beloved, what does your faith look like? How do you see the law fulfilled? You know, Paul gives another warning here about what they undoubtedly have seen in verse 15. And it's something, unfortunately, that we see all too often in the church. He says, but use your freedom to serve one another. It's glorifying to God. But if you bite and devour one another, Beware lest you be consumed by one another. Doesn't sound like freedom, does it? Which attitude do you think is prevalent in the church of Jesus Christ today? Perhaps even more importantly, in light of all we're talking about, what are you going to do about it? The life of faith is not simply a life where we lay aside all differences so that we can just pretend to love one another. It's not a call to embrace the hippie lifestyle of the 60s and 70s. That's not what this gospel love is. But the one who truly walks by faith knows when to serve. And knows when in that same love to draw the proverbial line in the sand and say, thus far and no farther. 
Beloved, I pray that we as a congregation will be known for the way in which we love one another, even when we have no choice but to stand up and fight for the glory of God. The gospel transforms the people of God, and it does it in this way. Will you shine forth the beautiful light of the gospel as you live for others being more than yourself?